So, Rebecca, Simone Biles, tell us the situation. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I mean, here is an athlete at the top of her game. I guess in her vault, she just completed something that no one else has done. Um, And she pulled out of the group competition in the Olympics, citing mental health issues. Uh, The next day, pulled out of the individual all around. She was the gold medal favorite. And so it's kind of an amazing moment where someone at the top of their game is saying, I just can't compete right now. That's not the best thing for my mental health. And this is unprecedented, right? Yeah. Usually people might pull out because of an injury, but to pull out because of quote unquote mental health reasons is brand new. Yeah. I mean, and it's an amazing example also set by... Who? The tennis player, um, Os- Osaka, Naomi, oh, right. Naomi Osaka, um, that, you know, we just can't expect people to perform and perform and perform no matter what. Right. Um, if people haven't watched- Especially those uh, uh, things. You know, sometimes I get the impression like some of the sports, they seem like pretty chill people, like the- um, Winter Olympics, the you know, snowboarder dudes, they, they seem like they have a good life outside of their competition. I mean, not that they don't try hard. I'm sure they do. But but the gymnasts, we all understand from documentaries and just the way it looks, the the all-encompassing mind and body and soul and spirit that those sports will um, occupy from sometimes when you're since you're four years old can... I think it doesn't take a genius or someone educated in mental health to understand that that's going to take a toll. And also, I think for us to look at how uh, someone's history plays in. So Simone is quite open about how her she was adopted by her grandparents. I believe it's either at two or three because of her mother's substance abuse. Her mother gives up two or three children to the grandparents. So we have that early childhood trauma. And then she's very open about the sexual abuse that she experienced by the team doctor, whose name is... Larry Nasser. I did a whole deep dive on him. Um, so we've got multiple traumas occurring here. Yeah. And then you have how the Black Lives Matter movement has impacted black athletes. Um, so all of these things are unprecedented. Unprecedented. Um, and she's saying, I just can't compete in a way that's safe. I mean, also what we ask of athletes right now is really incredible. I think of this also with the, the dancer clients that I've worked with who might have needed a knee replacement by 18. I mean, what we're asking of young people to do to their bodies. Yeah. I also worked with a high school level athlete who had blown out his shoulder and was expected to get a college scholarship and had already lost the great skill that his parents had spent all this time encouraging, even by the time he got through, he didn't even make it through high school and had to reframe his life. Um, So what we are asking and encouraging and applauding people to do with their bodies is um, beyond a precedent. I mean, I remember hearing that a current sixth grader could beat an Olympian in the hundred yard dash from a hundred years ago, like due to nutrition (laughs) Yeah. So what issues specifically has Simone Biles talked about? Has she been specific? Well, she has not. She hasn't said specifically why her mental health is struggling at this time. Yeah. But I think 
for her to say, hey, I need to, to rest and encourage my teammates and not compete right now is huge. And her teammate did win the gold medal. Um, spacing on her name, she's a Hmong American woman from Minneapolis. And what's interesting is the coverage is so like, like Simone didn't compete for us. It's like, is that really what we expect for people when they're not feeling well to put on a show to bring home right and so that we can make a new pepsi commercial like is that what we're up to yeah uh side note i did see a snippet of simone's floor routine and she did this uh twist flip that looked like it was in the matrix movie or something i mean it was i don't know it didn't look humanly possible how high she got off the ground and then she lands it just perfectly. I mean, it was, I, I just couldn't believe what I was looking at, you know? And the first issue that um, became apparent kind of to everybody was in the group competition when she didn't land her famous vault. She stumbles when she lands and the whole team said, everybody knew then that something was up. Yeah. Um, because that's just not like her. So I would just total speculation, of course, and, you know, take everything I'm saying with a grain of salt. I wouldn't be surprised if it was one of the following. One, obviously, you know, stress-induced and pressure-induced, but also worry about failure and having maybe even suicidal thoughts. Uh, I could see that being a, a part of the equation. I could see just mental exhaustion and depression sinking in pretty hard enough to get some activity done. And then like, I just, I just can't, I just, I don't want to, I'm not feeling it anymore. I could see that. Um, the, did you see the Pierce Morgan thing? Mm -mm. So a lot of people are praising Simone Biles uh, because she is obviously a wonderful athlete, but also a wonderful person and a good role model. And a lot of, you know, she arguably is the biggest star in the Olympics, even before the Olympics began this year, right? And that's one of the things she said is the pressure of being the star athlete. Right. From, it's too much. Right. Uh, so everyone is praising her on Twitter and whatnot and saying, you know, that, they're happy for her and she's brave that she is able to um, step forward and lead the way and be a good example and advocate for herself. And, you know, presumably, you know, the Olympics are supposed to be, it's amateur. So it's supposed to be at least like something you enjoy. Right. I mean, for achievement's sake, maybe, but also just for, for funsies. Like it's like getting back again to the, Snowboarders, I, I I don't know, but I get a, uh, I'm I'm just gonna go out on a limb and say that when they started snowboarding at the age of ten, they they were having fun, and they got good at it, and they they just happened to go down a road of the Olympics. Maybe in twenty years it'll be different, and they'll start training snowboarders at the age of four. But when it comes to gymnastics, I just get the especially at that level, I just get this impression like it's never or it's it's very quickly transitioned from something that kids do for fun to something that they do for achievement only and for 
uh, prestige or getting to that next all-star level. Anyway, but so people are praising Simone Biles, which is which is great. And Pierce Morgan and others came forward saying that Simone Biles should not be celebrated because she's failing, essentially. Mm-hmm. That you, uh, essentially saying that uh, one, she's a failure and a and a and a and she's weak essentially is the message, not the words, but mainly the message of society should not be celebrating her. You know, she's failing. She's quitting. You shouldn't celebrate people who are failing and quitting. This is another reason why the younger generation is stupid. I mean, that's not exactly what he said, but that's the kind of vibe. And of course, now everyone hates Pierce Morgan, which which they should. But I think that he does communicate and exhibit an attitude that absolutely does exist in society. Sure. I mean, this idea that like perform no matter what, we need that gold medal. You you got to give this to us. I mean, it's also there's some really underlying racism and sexism here, which is like we paid for you to get here, produce. Right. Um, I think that's really interesting. And I'm having it's very funny. I so I often turn phrases into kind of um, little graphics. And I just wrote one up that said, no matter what you need to do, no matter what you need to stop to focus on your mental health, I support you. And it's the most popular thing I've ever done on Twitter. I put it up yesterday. And so I think something that Simone did by saying, not right now, I, I need a break, hit for so many people. Yeah. Because it's like produce, 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 produce every day. Um, and we're all really, really tired. And maybe we can't produce yeah. every day. Yeah. And maybe if you fly halfway across the world and your body's messed up <laughs> on a different time zone, you can't produce. And maybe if you try that vault and she said she got the turnsies and she stumbled when she came down, you realize I'm not at my best right now. Yeah. It's not safe for my body. It's not safe for my psyche. And you only get one mind, right? We all know how hard it is to come back. And it's, you know, sometimes you start to see those early signs of like, oh, I, I need a break. Yeah. And Americans are particularly bad about this. I don't know. I don't know if I know a single person, maybe aside from you. I don't know if you're like this in, the, in a good way regarding taking vacations, but I get the impression that you kind of are. But I... Everyone else I know besides you, Rebecca, is I'm always thinking, you know, you could take a vacation now and then. And I, and I could point that finger at me. I, I've literally had no vacation since the pandemic started. Mm-hmm. Um, I work every day and I like w- the work, so I... Uh, it doesn't annoy me. I don't like doing things that annoy me. So I can tell that it's not taking a toll in that way, but I wonder what it's doing to my mind and body to just be always on, always producing, always running at full tilt, right? Hashtag Dr. Kirk, take a vacation. (laughs) And I was also, I was talking with Bob about this on the podcast. I was trying to remember the last time I took more than a week of vacation because mm. Bob was saying you need two weeks because it's the second week that you really relax, mm-hmm. right? And I can't remember. I, I 
I th- it would I think I would have to go back maybe five ten years mm-hmm. the last time I took more than six seven days of, of vacation. Well, a lot of people have been asking me like, how are you coping with the vicarious trauma of continuing to be a therapist and the pandemic that appears to not be ending? And um, I'm basically taking a week off a month, so I'm working three quarters time, and I have those scheduled. I think through next February. So every month you have a full full week, Sunday to Sunday of not working. Yeah, and um, boy, I just need it. Like my eyes are shot. I uh, with a lot of my clients who are still in telehealth. I'm doing phone sessions. I just can't look at the screen anymore. I'm uh, ordering most of my food from a pre cooked food service. I find that I can't cook anymore. Like there's just a lot of signs that like. I don't have it to give right now. It's interesting. We're buying our son a junker car this weekend. So like he can start driving himself around. It's just like, how can I clear the deck? <laughs> like more, uh, le- less stress. And, you know, we're lucky that it's a privilege that we have the economic whatever's to do this. But, um, yeah, I, you know, I I applaud Simone for what she did, really for the example of what she did, because so often I'll ask my clients, do you have a person, either a famous person, someone in your family, a character in a movie or a book that you look up to who has said no, who has modeled, especially for women, saying no, and most of the time they'll say no. <laughs> and yeah. like here we have this, Everyone knows about it. It's really public. It just happened. I'm curious how often I'll ask that question in the future, and this story will come up. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm of two minds of the younger generation. On one hand, I think that they're much more apt or likely to do what Simone Biles is doing to not give in to the 50s, 60s mentality that we were injected with uh, in terms of working hard and self-sacrifice. I feel like younger people are um, more in tune emotionally than we were. They're more, um, they have more self-esteem, I think in general than, than we did growing up because of better parenting. And um, of course it's just anecdotal. So I don't think if you rewind the clock 20 years, a, a different gymnast would be able to say what, what, um, Simone Biles is saying, and you know Naomi Osaka. Similarly, um, I just okay. The next generation seems to be learning and doing things well and pushing back against the nonsense and, and thinking outside the box. That's good. But then I'm on, of another mind because anecdotally, I find a lot of young people are pushing themselves harder and harder and harder to succeed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so many people. I mean, tell me this. Maybe you're different because you, I think, come from a different social circle with your family. But when I was in high school, I don't remember anyone aside from a couple of my friends talking about going to like Ivy league schools. No, (laughs) you could, you could take a year off, not in my family, but I learned this from other people. You could take a year off. You could not go to college. There were other paths. Where did everyone go in San Diego to college? I mean, a lot of people went to the UC system or there was, yeah. you know, you could go to the community colleges. I mean, college was still affordable then, yeah. too. Right. 
Yeah, I think um, tuition at the University of Washington back then was something for a quarter was something like seven hundred dollars okay. for a full ride or something for a full load. But anyway, uh, I think a lot of middle class kids are um, put pushing themselves from like the sixth grade thinking about trying to get into Harvard or Yale or something or, or Stanford or something like that. And there's nothing wrong with that, but I find that kids today are expected to work and, and work hard on their career early. When I was a kid, I just, you were doing your thing. I just do my thing. (laughs) And even in college, um, I was just doing my thing. (laughs) I probably should have done a little bit more (laughs) career building in college, but but I look back and I'm saying, I'm glad that I took that time to actually enjoy my life. Well, and I think it's really interesting with a son who's very clearly on a vocational track right now and going into a vocational AA program after high school. It's fascinating to talk to Seattle parents and watch them kind of scramble. As I say, I am so thankful that next year my, we won't be doing any SAT prep. He won't be writing essays. We won't be doing a college tour. And there's just kind of this glaze of like, get back on the bus, Becca, you're messing his life up. And I'm thinking, really? Yeah. And then I get to say back, he will leave an AA program, probably with the ability to make $25 an hour. And he could always change his career later if he wants to. Yeah. But that's the thing that I, I just, as a professor, I do not understand the mentality that these people have that they will put so much, uh, on and energy wise um, and thought wise and money wise into where a child goes to get their, uh, you know, for their freshman and sophomore year in college, which means almost nothing in the bigger picture. Right. And um, what's really fascinating is that talking to my friend, my kids friends these days is that they get it, that there are no BA level jobs. (laughs) after college like you either get a trade you pray you're an influencer or you know you have to go on to get a master's degree to make a living wage but you don't have to go to yale to get your bachelor's degree to get a master's in something that you want to do later yeah you You can get that's the thing to to me it it seems flip-flopped to Get a master's degree in a field like, say, you want to be a cardiologist. You probably want to go to a medical school, if, especially if you want to work at a high-end hospital or something. You, you know, probably need to go to a high-end cardiology degree. Um, and maybe that's a bad example because pre-med degrees do kind of matter. But, but I find that a lot of people in high school are super focused on the bachelor degree. But... The bachelor's degree, a lot of times, is just a stepping stone. And like, you know, f- for you and me, we could have got a bachelor's anywhere and been a therapist. So it it didn't matter uh, where we went to get our bachelor's degree. And I think a lot of situations are like that. It can matter with your with your graduate degree. Yeah. I mean, if you've got kids right now in this boat, just really work to make sure that they're happy. <laughs> yeah, right. And the other thing is you're trying to get 16-year-olds to decide – what they're going to do with their lives, yeah, which is impossible to do, right? And that's why I'm. I, that's why the when we were kids, I think we had kind of the sweet spot because our you know our people who are older than us, they just they couldn't afford college or something. But our generation, you know, a lot of people could. Obviously, a lot of people couldn't. But 
but you and I could, you know, and and well, and, and you could also make a living wage off a blue collar job, right? But the model was just go to college. Mm-hmm. You know, don't worry about where you're going. Just anywhere that you get that liberal arts degree, yeah, get accepted, get the degree, and you'll figure it out eventually. Mm-hmm. You'll find your way eventually. I feel like today there's a lot of parents and kids who are not thinking that way. They're thinking like, I need to go to the best college. I need to go to this particular college. You know, I have friends with, you know, kids in high school right now. And, um, uh, and the kids are like, I want to go to this private school in New York or something. And they're choosing between getting a bachelor's degree that'll cost a hundred thousand dollars versus a bachelor's degree locally at the University of Washington, which is a very good university for, uh, you know, a quarter of the price. And, I, and I'm thinking, that's like, that's like you're, when you go, you're, you know, you're going to get Eli a car uh, soon, right? Hmm? That'd be like buying him a $100,000 Tesla on his first car. Why would you do that? He doesn't need a $100,000 Tesla. He can get by on a used Hyundai. He's getting a $7,000 car. Yeah. So, <laughs> like, uh, so because that's rational. You right. you don't want to waste your money on something. Yeah. You know, it would is it a better car? Yeah. Is it, you know, going to last longer? Sure. But you understand he'll, he'll eventually he'll get there. It's a waste of money. It's not a good allocation of your priorities. And I I I and now I'm not saying you're not supposed to go to the school you went to. I'm just saying that I think people just have this, yeah, scale this it, too much prestige in their mind. Scale it back. There's there's a myth about who will meet the rarefied error that will occur at those experiences when actually you'll you'll meet who you're supposed to meet wherever you go. Yeah. Speaking of that, I, ca- I have to go. Oh, all right. Well, let's wrap it up. Let's take a break and we get back. I will continue to read some emails. How about that? Sounds good. Hey, Deserving Listeners. As you all know, I am constantly recommending that people go to therapy. We all need therapy from time to time. Well, one of the options available that is definitely worth checking out is BetterHelp. If you're looking for a therapist, I would give it a try by going to betterhelp.com slash Kirk. Make sure you use the promo code Kirk because you get 10% off your first month and it really helps us out. As you watch these videos, I know many of you have been motivated to find your own therapist, which is great because you deserve it. And I know also that it can be hard to find a good fit, find the right one for you. Well, one of the options available in terms of your shopping is to go to betterhelp.com slash Kirk. I've been told you can start communicating with your therapist in under 24 hours. You can message your counselor at any time. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. I've also been told that it's often less expensive than in-person therapy, and you should know that this service is available to clients worldwide. So go to betterhelp.com slash Kirk to get 10% off your first month today. All right, we're back from the break. It's just me. Uh, Rebecca had to go, and I'm going to do an OPP a old patron praise for patrons who became patrons in March of 2018 and have remained patrons this whole entire time. We have Catherine from Hillsboro, New Jersey. We have Chrissy from God Knows Where. We have Crystal from Winona, Minnesota. We have Jennifer from Evanston, Illinois. We have Yang from God Knows Where. We have Mary or Mari from Hong Kong. We have Michael from Trenton, Michigan. We have Tanya from Houston, Texas. We have John from God Knows Where. We have Alexis, good old Alexis. 
I know Alexis from California. We have good old Bronwyn. Oh, my goodness. Alexis and Bronwyn became patrons almost at the exact same time. Bronwyn, of course, from across the globe. Super fan, Alexis and Bronwyn. We have Christina from uh, Westminster, California, uh, upper tier patron. I think I've interacted with Christina. We have Zhao from New York, New York. We have Denisa from Florida. We have Kristen from Montreal. We have Susan from God knows where. We have Natalie from... Uh, upper tier patron Natalie from Castro Valley, California. We have Ariane from Seattle, Washington. We know where that is. Caroline, Caroline from Lou, Lou's, Great Britain. We have Heather from Austin, Texas. We have Brandy from Carnation, Washington. Oh, my goodness, Carnation. That's uh, very close to where I grew up. We have Michael from Vienna. And we have uh, Leah from Little Rock, Arkansas. Thank you all for being a patron and being a patron for so long. Um, during the break, I got an email from my malpractice insurance and they sent me a brief. I always love these in which people get sued successfully. Essentially my insurance company, malpractice insurance company sends out these, um, scare stories to make sure that us insured do not make mistakes and get sued successfully. So uh, I'm just going to kind of read it and summarize as I go. I've read it already, but so there is a client and she is a registered nurse and she had a suspended license while at work because she was caught drinking at work. Your employer um, reported her to the state board of nursing and uh, in order to you know keep her license or get her license back, she had to go to drug and alcohol treatment. The insured counselor is the licensed alcohol and drug counselor. So this is the person that was eventually sued. So the the alcohol counselor starts working with the client and let's see d- during support service during support sessions during 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 working with the client the client's drinking habits were discussed in great de- detail which makes sense. The client, the nurse, advised the drug and alcohol counselor about how the nurse, she and her former best friend, also a registered nurse and colleague, would occasionally drink alcohol while on duty in the neonatal intensive care unit or the NICU at a local hospital. The client believed that the friend reported her drinking habits to their employer because the two of them had a disagreement prior to her termination and board investigation. So uh, just to summarize this, the client, the nurse, so remember there's a nurse that's a client and that was fired for or that was suspended for a bit time and we had the drug and alcohol counselor and the the client the nurse is saying that she used to drink with her friend during work hours while they were working in the NICU and the client was saying that she thinks that her friend was the one that reported her because she doesn't know who reported her because they had a disagreement before her friend left uh, the hospital After several months of support sessions, I don't know why they're calling them support sessions, the counselor became convinced that the well-being of the patients were at risk if the client's former friend, so I'll just, sorry, so the drug and alcohol counselor is hearing about, uh, you know, from this client that she's saying, you know, I used to drink with this other person. Well, his client is in, you know, was caught, but the friend did not get caught. So he... The counselor starts worrying about these children in the NICU with a drunk, potentially drunk 
nurse and is concerned about the well-being of the children. And so the, uh, you know, we're mandated reporters. And although this is a kind of a unique situation, we don't run across these kinds of situations very often. He decided to report that other nurse to Child Protective Services. So just to review mandated reporting, we are mandated to report child abuse, potential child abuse, and also the abuse or neglect of dependent adults. And um, we uh, report things that, um, you know, of any sort, even if like if, and I even tell people this when I first talk, when I first meet with them in, in my office, I say, even if you tell me about a friend of a friend who abused their kids or might have be abusing their kids, I still have to report that. So it's not based on um, observing or hearing firsthand knowledge. You, you could hear rumors of abuse happening and you still have to technically report it. There are some nuances there, but generally speaking, that's true. So then the, let's see, the counselors report initiated investigation on the other nurse. The employer's investigation lasted several months, a couple years, and didn't find any problems with the nurse. And then the other nurse, you know, the non-client nurse, f- uh, filed a lawsuit against the um, therapist, the marriage and, the um, drug and alcohol counselor, and also the client, the the nurse, the former friend, and saying that the therapist and the client made inaccurate, defamatory, and non-objective reports to the licensing board about her behavior, saying that you lied and you made stuff up, and so I'm going to sue the two of you because you have, you know, put me through a lot of trouble. And the nurse is saying that her, you know, problems with depression and anxiety got exacerbated and that sort of thing. Okay, so at first the lawyers get involved and with the drug and alcohol counselor, and they say the defense experts opined that the case against the counselor was defensible, meaning that the uh, if this went to court, they have a good case that the counselor acted um, ethically. They said the insured stated that he had no motive to report the matter other than the concern for the well-being of the infant patients with to whom the nurse was providing care. The insured counselor received information he thought to be true and reported the information as a mandated reporter pursuant to the state law. And by the way, this brings up an interesting conundrum because if you had an if you uh, had an enemy, for example, just like a rival or somebody you didn't like, and you went to your therapist and, and just made up a story and said that they, you know, your ex husband or that's you know you hate him and you just make up a story that he abused his kids or is abusing his kids there would be an investigation and you you would start an investigation and that can be a you know stressful thing for them but you can also be sued if you lie and just make stuff up right or you don't have good enough reason to make such a report um so uh, again the nurse was suing both the nurse, the other nurse, and the therapist. Um, da, da, da. But then what happened is immediately, bef- so just before the defense team was ready to file 
motion summary of summary judgment following the favorable defense ex- expert opinion. So basically, just before they were about to submit to the court that look, you know, I think I think we have a good case to defend this therapist counselor. Immediately prior to filing the motion to dismiss the counselor, the, the defense counsel learned that the insured counselor sent an email to the plaintiff's employer after he was served papers related to the lawsuit. The counselor sent this email and, and after he was, you know, cautioned not to communicate. And so in this email, he and they have some quotes from this email because it's pretty important. So this is the drug and alcohol counselor sending emails to that other nurse's new employer. And he says, the manner the nurse responded to the board complaint suggests she cannot control her anger. Rather than protecting her character, she has chosen to expose her mental and physical status in a, in a public record forum by way of filing a nuisance lawsuit. This is very concerning and hope the nurse, this is very concerning and hope the nurse gets the emotional I'm guessing this is very concerning, and I hope the nurse gets the emotional and psychological help she needs, unquote. So essentially what the insured drug and alcohol counselors, uh, I'm guessing, this is speculative, of course, is that the drug and alcohol counselor reports that person because the drug and alcohol counselor is very concerned about the patients that this other nurse is working with, and then walks away and says, well, you know, I did a good job, and then a while later gets uh, slapped with a lawsuit saying that he uh, was defamatory and the counselor is concerned about that like hey I don't I don't want to be sued for this this is this is concerning and what he should have done would he should have just uh, done nothing essentially and just followed the advice of his lawyers and, and gone through the process because if he would have done that then he would have been fine because he made the report and you know he he had reason to believe that children were being abused and it's not his fault. Now the other person, the other nurse can be sued uh, successfully, potentially if it can be proved that that other person was just making stuff up or being flippant about reports like that. But instead of the insured counselor doing that, he sent an email to the employer for no discernible reason, essentially expressing his anger at the, the nurse for suing him, saying that she you know clearly cannot control her anger. That's why she's suing me. And instead of doing the right thing, she ex- chosen to expose her mental and physical status in a public record forum by way of filing a nuisance lawsuit. I mean, that sentence is weird because he is essentially, I think, saying that this other nurse is making stuff up about her mental and physical status. And then this is very concerning, and I hope the nurse gets the emotional and psychological help she needs. And this is the sort of thing that I will hear from mental health professionals when they are backed up into a corner or they feel backed up into a corner is that they will use their psychology lingo or jargon or assessment uh, clinical clout to tear other people down instead of just realizing, well, this is a bad situation. I shouldn't use my professional language as a as a hammer against other people, as a, as a weapon against other people. And it, that's just kind of how it sounds like to me. So when the defense counsel, the attorneys learn that he sent this email, 
it's now very concerning because now it kind of looks like the drug and alcohol counselor was indeed out to get this other nurse. He didn't just make a report to CPS. He seemingly has a preconceived notion about this person with whom he's never met and whom he's never assessed or, you know, spoken with other people about what this nurse. So it, it started to look bad for the counselor. And if the counselor had never sent those emails, it would have been fine. But then um, they decided, the defense counsel decided to, um, you know, they like, uh-oh, the, the plaintiff and their lawyers have a lot of claim here. And the total incurred uh, the in terms of the cost was $185,000, which is, which is pretty good. Um, well, this is weird. At the end, it says on behalf of the insured physical therapist, it says a physical therapist. Did I get this? No, it was, it was, um, drug and alcohol, licensed alcohol drug. I think that's a typo <laughs> anyway. So what can we learn from this situation? Well, what we can learn it, and they went into detail on this a little bit too, is that there's, there are laws, state laws that protect us mandated reporters because we we're backed up into a corner. We have to report things. And this applies to teachers and physicians as well, as far as I know. But anyway, it applies to mental health people. And when we hear about the abuse of a minor, we have to report it, right? Or the potential abuse of a minor, we have to report it. But some, some of the times that can lead to damages for other people, like in a situation like this. And the, um, uh, uh, w- w- so the law was set up, I'm, I'm guessing there was some legislation that said, look, we have to pr- protect mandated reporters so that they aren't damned if they do, damned if they don't. You know, they'll get in trouble if they don't report and they'll get in trouble if they do report. Also, we want to encourage people to report these things. Presumably, child protective services in the system will act rationally and won't harm people and, you know, they won't assume guilt and so they will go into a situation uh, with an open mind and and be fair about everything. But so in the beginning, it's like, well, you got to make that report that drug and alcohol counselor heard about this other nurse who was drunk in a child patient uh, forum and the counselor made the report. Now, I'm going to take a guess and say that if he didn't make the report and it was found out by CPS that he hadn't made the report, that he wouldn't be in trouble because that's that's kind of a, a stretch of a situation because he doesn't know how intoxicated this other nurse was. He doesn't even know if the intoxication actually caused uh, impairment on the job. He doesn't know um, the sort of work that she was doing. You know, maybe she was just doing computer work and you know, not necessarily handling the infants. So the, uh, the details, at least that we have, I would imagine that you wouldn't get in trouble if you didn't make the report, but it makes sense that he did. And he did. And then if, and then the nurse files, you know, strikes back. And if he just would have done nothing, he would have, he would have been in the clear because there's a precedent and a law, I believe, and in a lot of areas saying that, look, you know, he made the report, he heard the information and that he's not lying. He can't be sued for making that report. But then Instead of just sitting on his hands, he decides to write emails against, you know, the recommendation of the lawyers because he what he's upset. He wants to, like, strike back at the employer and say, um, you know, this 
this nurse is a piece of work. But, you know, essentially asking the employer what, I don't even know what the email to the employer, what, like you need to fire her or something? Like he's on some sort of crusade against this other nurse. And this is a problem that I see maybe it, for everyone, I don't know, but I, in my profession, as I am supervising therapists, I see this problem where therapists are fairly communicative people and tend to want to communicate a lot and they sort of default to that. And sometimes it's better if you don't say anything, especially when you're in a legal uh, fight. And more often where I see this problem cropping up is that someone will be in a a custody dispute or something uh, and, or a divorce proceeding and a client will ask their therapist, can you write a report for me? Or even the therapist will say, I'll write a report for you. And yeah, I won't go down a rabbit hole on this topic, but there are, it's not like you can't write reports in those situations. You for sure can if you're qualified. Often therapists are not qualified in their writing reports, but you know, you can get training and supervision in writing reports and such matters. Often the ethics dictate that you can't write one of those reports for a client. You have to write them for uh, someone that you're just working with for the purposes of that report but the often what i'll see is that therapists will just say yeah okay i'll write a report for you because they care right and they want to help and they also just don't know what where their competency lies and they don't understand how the law works and they don't understand how courts will uh, see that and there are so many times in which therapists are asked to write reports and they write them and they get in trouble because they want to communicate <laughs> or the therapist, like I said, or the therapist just offers it up. It's just like, Hey, I don't like what I'm hearing. You know, a, a woman comes in and says, Oh, my husband is, you know, doing this. He's, he's um, not spending time with the kids and he is doing all the, you know, it's not abusive to the kids, but concerning to you as a therapist. And then the, the therapist will feel compelled somehow to, try to save the kids or to be punitive towards him because they have countertransference or something. And um, you have to talk with your supervisor or a consultant or a lawyer about what your professional actions um, can entail. And um, this this case uh, shows that. All right, let's go to quick questions that people submit on Discord. I have a a channel there where people submit quick questions. And this person, Cookie Queen says, Dr. Kirk, is there a term for someone who always has an, an, an ulterior motive for anything that they do? I'm not talking about normal ulterior motives, like enjoying volunteering because it makes you feel good. End of question. Yeah. So uh, interesting question. The, uh, so you're saying, so what's, what do we mean by our ulterior? Usually what we're meaning is intentionally hidden, I suppose. So is um, because sometimes we will. And so I don't know what you're using cookie queen exactly with the word ulterior. Uh, the, the pure definition is uh, hitting, hiding something intentionally, but it um, sometimes people use it to mean evil, uh, hidden intentions. Right. So, you know, you can have an ulterior motive, like I am saving money uh, quietly 
Um, or, or I say, hey, to my wife, let's, let's go out to dinner tonight. And my ulterior motive is I want to get her out of the house so that they can set up the house for a surprise party. Okay, that's a hidden intention, right? It's an ulterior motive. The, uh, but is it evil? And I'm guessing that you're talking, Cookie Queen, about evil motives that are hidden. And you're saying, is there a term for someone who always does that? And uh, no, there is not. Not that I know of anyway. There's, there are many different labels in the DSM one could conceptualize for someone like that, obviously psychopathy. But really, um, there's a lot of reasons. And in fact, I would say that everyone, when they're pushed into a relational corner, will exhibit slightly harmful or ulterior motives. Like, I don't want to admit that my wife is right about me because I have a hidden agenda of making sure that I never admit that I'm wrong. <laughs> you know, anyway, uh, Amanda Pendo says, Dr. Kirk, are schemas and working models the same thing? Great question. I love questions like this because it, it, it tells me you're listening because when we talk about these kinds of things, there's a lot of details, and if you understand the concepts well enough, you will see connections. And you'll think, huh, working models and attachment theory, are they the same thing as schemas? That's a great question. It means you're integrating things. That's when you know you're smart and wise and intelligent. And the answer is, yeah. Uh, I mean, no. The answer is no. <laughs> the answer is sort of. So um, working models are more general. So we have a, well, actually, let me think about this for a second. So when a work, if we have, you know, if I have a wor working model of others, for example, and my working model of others is that they can be trusted, but, you know, not entirely that other people are good, but, you know, not entirely. So that's a working model of others that will dictate how I feel about others, how, how safe I feel around others, the way I treat them, my sort of triggers. Schemas, though, are perhaps more specific, and the system in schema therapy is a more specific language system. But if we're just... Now, that's within... If we're talking about attachment theory and schema therapy, but... The word schemas and the word working, this phrase working models, are not entirely within those theories, right? You can have a schema, you can talk about schemas and not talk, not necessarily even know what schema therapy is. Schema therapy developed its name because it adopted the word schema, which is from cognitive therapy, I believe. And I, I think psychodynamic people also would use the word schema sometimes. So uh, the more general term of schema is uh, a way of seeing the world and the more general term of working model is a way of seeing the world and the self, you know, schemas included. So in some ways they're different. In some ways they are the same. So that's a great question, Amanda. Marlene says, Dr. Kirk, I am currently writing my thesis about how people in self-help groups that focus on alcohol consumption experience the pandemic. Um, writing a thesis about how people in self-help groups that focus on alcohol consumption experience the pandemic. So like AA groups, um, I'm wondering if you can qualify 
for alcohol use disorder if you have problematic consumption but are never drunk? Okay, this is the question. Can you qualify for alcohol use disorder if you have problematic consumption but you are never really drunk? The answer is yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it depends on your definition of drunk. One, you know, there uh, there are thresholds of intoxication that we can measure, like cognitive effects, speech effects, memory effects, coordination effects, etc. In you know, in inhibition effects. But there's no line in the sand that we would say, okay, now you're drunk, right? Because technically, as soon as you have half of a drink, you know, half a beer, half a glass of wine, you are intoxicated almost immediately, meaning that there are measurable effects, even for people that have a a pretty good tolerance to alcohol. Um, And uh, now I will say that some people, particularly people who drink a lot, might not notice that they're intoxicated because they are used to the feeling. So there's that sort of thing. But we can measure. It's pretty easy to measure. You can, you just, in fact, I did a test like this when I was in college. They had me into the lab at University of Washington and I would drink alcohol, you know, they would, it was gross. It was like nasty vodka with orange juice, I think. And I would just, I'd have to drink it in a whole glass of it in like five minutes. And I remember thinking like, well, you know, I'm in college, I'm, I can drink. And I remember just thinking, I, I guess I don't normally just chug, um, what do you call screwdrivers? <laughs> you don't usually just like glug, 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 glug in five minutes. It was pretty hard. But anyway, and I remember getting pretty hammered, actually. <laughs> they gave me a lot of booze and then they gave me all these tests. So you can, and I, I think the test was to see my, anticipatory anxiety response because um, the first thing they had me do was I was doing all these uh, tests on a computer and I remember the tests were really hard and I didn't know this at the time but one of the research methods that you can use on people is you can give them tests you 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 tell them to do this task but the task is either super easy or super hard and you're not really testing that you're actually testing something else. And then after every test that I would take on the computer, they would um, shock me (laughs) in the arm. I had like this electric lead on my arm and there'd be this buildup of this noise. It'd be like, uh, and it lasted like a minute or two. And the whole time I'm thinking, and I just had to sit there and wait for the pain and I think they were measuring how my body, because they might have had me hooked up to other kinds of things like respiratory measures and this sort of thing to see how my body responded to fear of the impending electrical shock, given how drunk I was. <laughs> anyway, so we can measure this pretty well. But your question is, you know, uh, can can you qualify for, for alcohol use disorder? Well, we have to look at what alcohol use disorder um, all the different um, criteria. So let's look in the DSM here, substance-related disorders, alcohol use disorder. All right. So a problematic pattern of alcohol use leading to clinically significant impairment or distress as manifested by at least two of the following. So, and I remember when DSM-5 came out, I, I, if I remember right, they actually lowered the threshold for alcohol use disorder because they 
uh, delineated between mild, moderate, and severe. And so you only need two to qualify for mild, mild alcohol use disorder occurring within a 12-month period. Okay, so there are 11 things. Um, one, alcohol is often taken in large amounts over a longer period of time than was intended. So you could have that without being drunk. Uh, two, there is a persistent desire and unsuccessful efforts to cut down or control alcohol use. So right there, you can have those two, meaning that like at the end of the night, you're like, oh, I drank too much and I need to cut down on my alcohol use. And um, maybe you just have one glass of wine at the at, after dinner every day. And by that definition, you suffer from alcohol use disorder uh, and you were never drunk. Number three, a great deal of time is spent in activities necessary to obtain alcohol, use alcohol, or recover from its effects. Number four, you crave alcohol. Number five, recurrent alcohol use resulting in a failure to fulfill major role obligations at work, school, at home. Um, so you, that one often is because you're drunk, right? You can't go to work because you're drunk or hungover, which usually means you were you were what we might colloquial call colloquially call drunk. But it could also just be that you have alcohol on your breath and you can't go to work. Uh, number six, continued alcohol use despite having persistent recurrent social or interpersonal problems caused or exacerbated by the effects of alcohol. Number seven, important social, occupational, or recreational activities are given up or reduced because of alcohol use. Number eight, recurrent alcohol use in situations in which it is physically hazardous. Recurrent alcohol use in situations where it is physically hazardous. Number nine, alcohol use is continued despite knowledge of having a persistent or recurrent physical or psychological problem. Number 10, tolerance. And number 11, withdrawal when you, when you don't get it. So you could have just two of those and qualify for the disorder. And you notice none of those say you get super sloshed because <laughs> that's not a definition of alcohol use disorder. Um, just being sloshed or, you know, and it's kind of interesting. You think they probably should include some degree there, right? Because if, if someone drank a half a glass of wine every day and didn't like the fact that they depended on that half a glass of wine and were trying to cut back and couldn't cut back and sometimes they couldn't hang out with their parents because their parents didn't like to smell alcohol on their breath, um, that sort of thing, then they absolutely would uh, qualify for alcohol use disorder, maybe even moderate. But they're never being, they're never, uh, their their intoxication level is extremely low, um, but in pop, but that doesn't usually happen. Is the thing usually if you have a problem with alcohol, you're craving it, you have tolerance, you're drinking more than you want to. Typically, this means frequently being quote unquote drunk, highly impaired, um, memory problems, this sort of thing. All right, this next question is from patron Adam. He writes. Can my character be the reason my girlfriends cheat on me? All my girlfriends have cheated on me, and I am getting insecure and preoccupied. I am losing my confidence with women. Is there anything wrong with me, or am I choosing the wrong people? I like strong, confident, independent women. I am 35 and just want a rela- 38, and I just want a relationship that lasts. End of email. Yeah, of course, I can't know the answer to that question without doing a investigation with you, and I still would only be able to take some good guesses. But here are some things that I'll throw out that you can contemplate with your therapist. One is just bad luck. This is very important for everyone to understand is that, you know, somehow when 
we think about um, certain aspects of our life, we we rarely apply luck to it. Like it's it's also you know our jobs are kind of luck because when you're starting out in your career and you're trying to get a job, you're looking online, you're asking around. It's a, a fair amount of luck that will. Uh, that you'll be connected with the sort of person you need to be connected to, or even that the job is available at the time. You know, say your dream job isn't open right now, and it will be open in six months, but you don't understand that yet. So you take a different job, and then while you're at that different job, you stop looking, and then your dream job comes along and passes you by. So the same is true with romance, is a lot of it is luck. You meet people in a fairly random fashion, uh, the person you meet might just be having a bad day or they might have kind of liked someone uh, the day before and they're not really open to to you, even though they're the perfect person for you. So, Patron Adam, it's entirely possible that since uh, a lot of your girlfriends in the past have cheated on you, that you've just had really bad luck and there's nothing there's nothing strange about women or you or anything like that. But if, if we're looking at a pattern uh, th- that is very persistent – then it starts to lend itself towards there's something about you, essentially. So either you're attracted to the wrong people, maybe you're attracted to, you know, you say you're attracted to strong, confident, independent women. So on one hand, we could just take those words as positives, strong, confident, independent. You know, who doesn't want that in a partner? But that can look, you know, a psychopath can look strong, confident, and independent, but they're not strong, confident, independent. Really, they're just a psychopath. They don't care about other people's feelings. So it's, you know, some people are attracted to psychopaths because of their pasts, and that's a problem. You know, you, uh, you'll you talk to someone, they'll be like, yeah, my three past girlfriends were all psychopaths. And you look into it, and you're like, yeah, that's true. Why is that? You know, well, it, and psychopaths are rare. You also might be attracted to women that aren't really into you. Um, you know, you, it's, it's possible that you are self-defeating in that way. And so, um, you know, because one of the ways that people will end relationships, unfortunately, is to cheat. They uh, are mentally and, and emotionally out of a relationship and they don't know how to say no. They don't know how to break up. And so they just start cheating. And that's a big problem with a lot of uh, what people are doing. And so it's possible that you're not really cheating. You're not really choosing cheaters. You're choosing people that aren't into you and don't have the maturity to be able to just tell you to your face that they're not into you. It's possible you're attracted to chaotic women. You know, there's a lot of different qualities that could result in cheating that um, you're not in consciously aware of when you're first attracted to them. You know, it's, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to blame the victim, but um, I mean, the first thing I was, first thing I should say, Adam, is I'm really sorry you've been cheated on. That's awful. There's no excuse for that. You're, um, even if you're attracted to certain kinds of people, that that doesn't mean it's your fault. When someone cheats on someone, that's the cheater's fault. They decided to not break up with you beforehand. They decided to deceive you. They decided several. They took several different actions to hide something very important from you maybe even ongoing, which is wrong. It's immoral. You can't just walk up to someone and slap someone in the face, right? That's harming someone. In the same way, you can't just walk up to your spouse and lie by omission. That's not okay. It's also possible that you have bad interpretations, that you're jumping to conclusions regarding exclusivity too fast. You meet them and you assume exclusivity or 
you pressure them to agree to exclusivity with you when they don't really want to, and then they just proceed with their dating life and you perceive it as being cheating. I don't know. Uh, I, you, the, I only read part of your email on the air. I read your whole email, and there, there seemed to be a possible uh, hypothesis there for that one. It's also possible that you push people away somehow, and when they fall out of love with you, they um, start cheating. There's another possibility that you give off a vibe that scares people towards the end of a relationship so that they can't tell you they want to break up, and so they cheat instead. But again, I don't want to blame the victim. It could be that you just had bad luck and you've you've come across some um, immoral people. It's just you're you're trying to date and you just accidentally chose the wrong the wrong ones, and that that just happens sometimes. You know, you you walk into a new city and you look on Yelp and you try to choose the right restaurant and. You know, you go to a restaurant and you have a meal and there's a there's a fly in your soup and and you you go to another city and you try to choose the the best restaurant and you go there and there's a hair in your sandwich. And you don't blame yourself. I mean, you start thinking there's something wrong with my Yelp, uh, you know, review reading. You know, you're you're operating on the best knowledge that you have available to at the time and so with the women that you've you've dated you know you did the best you could and it's not your fault that they cheated on you but it is very worthy of a it's very worthy of a topic to look into because if you're seeing a pattern then some therapy and some healing and some self-awareness might help all right this next email is from patron maya she writes what kind of couples therapy is being used on the tv show couples therapy it doesn't seem gottman do you know what kind is being used by the therapist? My partner and I are in therapy, and I am not happy with the Gottman method. Is it EFT? End of email. Yeah, if you're not aware, there's a show on Showtime, the TV show, the TV channel called Couples Therapy. And uh, incidentally, it is now the way we describe couple therapy. You know, I, I've talked about this before, but for the first several decades, it was never couples therapy. It was always couple therapy. In fact, the program that I teach in at Antioch University is the program of couple and family therapy. But in the last 10 years, there's been an increasing use of the word couples therapy. And I remember 20 years ago, occasionally like one out of a you know, 100 students would say couples therapy, and I would correct them. I'd say it's not couples therapy in the same way that it's not families therapy or individuals therapy. It's couple therapy. It's individual therapy. It is family therapy. They are singular. Group therapy. It's not groups therapy. And I remember thinking, well, I kind of see why people are doing this because it, it rolls off the tongue better. Couple therapy, it, there's something about the couple, ther like the old, you know, that transition I think is harder for people. Couples therapy, couples therapy, I think rolls off the tongue easier. But I remember thinking, but that shouldn't be a reason why we change the term. As someone that has been uh, reading about couple therapy and teaches in a couple and family therapy program, and someone that um, writes about couple therapy. I I don't recommend we ch just change it to couples because it's easier to say it's it's inaccurate, you know. But more and more people in at my pro in my program we a lot. So I don't know if I've said this before, but at my university for many many years I was the young one by far. 
all the other professors nine times out of 10 or I don't know, 19, 19 out of 20 professors were a lot older, 10, 20, uh, 30, 40 years older than me. And I was the young whippersnapper. And then they all started to retire. And as I'm going through my 40s, they all start to retire because they're in their 70s at this point and 80s. And some of them actually died. One of my professors, she died like, I don't know, a month after she retired. It was really sad. Uh, she was a good friend. And now they have a big painting of her in, in my hallway at, at the university, which is nice to see. But anyway, and I think I posted a picture of that painting on Instagram year, a couple few years ago. Anyway, um, so as they started to retire, we started hiring new professors. And so you put out the call and you start hiring people. And a lot of the people looking for a job are younger. So we're hiring people in their 20s and 30s. And suddenly, almost seemingly overnight, especially on the time scale of a university, since everything moves at a snail's pace, I felt that I was the old guy. All of a sudden, I went from the super young guy to the super old guy. And actually, it's a weird parallel with my family, actually, because my there were my parents and there were my older siblings who were about six years older, and there was me. And so I was always the young one. I was always the baby. And then all of a sudden, my younger brother was born seven years after me. And then my older brother, and so there was this time where there were, all of us lived at home, you know, because there's a 14-year difference between my older siblings and my younger sibling. And so there was a time when all four of us living at home. And so there was a time when I was the baby. Then there was a time I was the middle. And then my older brother and sister moved out. I was in middle school, high school, and my younger brother was in grade school. And so I was the oldest all of a sudden. So I went from being and almost kind of like a youngest or an only child went because my older brother and sister parented me. So I kind of had it all. <laughs> I was an only, I was a youngest, I was a middle, I was an oldest. And uh, I went through that at, at the university. Hardly anyone was my age. Everyone was either super old and then they retired. And then all of a sudden everyone's super young and now I'm the oldie. So all these young people coming into the program, I start hearing them say couples therapy. And I'm like, and I, I don't want to correct them because it's, it's I don't want to be pedantic in that jerk face. So I would I mean, in the when I was program director, I would correct everyone because because I would say, no, 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 you are in the couple and family therapy program. We teach couple therapy because it's in the title. <laughs> it's not up for debate. We you know, to change the name of a academic program, you got have to go through a lot of different things. And so. It's couple therapy. All the books say couple therapy. I, in fact, I, I bet you there isn't a single book that uses the term couples therapy, uh, you know, academic book. It's all couple therapy and uh, for good reason. Now, in 30 years, are we going to see books that are called couples therapy? Now, is there a book out there called couples therapy? Sure, but no respectable academic book uses the term couples therapy. Anyway, so all these young professors start using couples therapy and I, at first I'd push back and then eventually I just stopped saying anything. And now it's just the norm to the point now where you have a TV show called couples therapy. Anyway. So if you didn't know, there's a showtime show called couples therapy and I've been doing reaction videos to it on YouTube. And so uh, Maya is mentioning that and asking me what I think the therapist's method is what I think the therapist theoretical orientation is. And my answer to that is I have no idea. And it, it isn't uncommon to watch a therapist and not know what their theoretical orientation is. Because 
I find that unless you're a really strict um, adherence to your model, you know, if you're a Gottman method th- therapist and you adhere to the model, then it'll be very obvious. In fact, session one, you probably say, I'm a Gottman therapist and I use the Gottman method and here is the Gottman handout and here's a book by John Gottman I want you to read. So uh, if you're a CBT therapist and you're really adamant about CBT, then it'll be obvious. If you're a solution-focused therapist or a narrative therapist, it'll be really obvious. But if you're a humanistic therapist, or and, and, and more people in my anecdotal experience are more of this gray zone therapist where their technique as a therapist isn't very elucidative, illustrative. <laughs> it doesn't elucidate their theoretical orientation. The other thing I'll say is a lot of people are what they call eclectic, meaning that they don't really they don't adhere to one model. Some eclectic people are eclectic for good reasons. I am actually. I'm. Uh, I I integrate all, and some people delineate between eclectic and integrative, but whatever. I integrate all the models. I love all of them except for a few, like um, reality therapy. Never sort of fit with me. Jungian never really. Uh, jazzed me. I mean, there's certain things about Jungian that I think that are fine, but it just doesn't resonate with me. But all the other ones, you know, the uh, the 40 other main theories, I find absolutely useful, and I integrate all of them. Other people use the term integra- or integrative or eclectic because they don't really understand any theory and they don't want to admit that, and so they just say, "Well, I use all of them," you know. And, and because if you say you're a psychodynamic therapist, presumably you'd be able to speak in the psychodynamic language. Whereas if you say you're eclectic, then you're not really necessarily tested in that way. So uh, some people will be eclectic. Some people will be humanistic. Some people will be psychodynamic. And you wouldn't know based on the way that they operate unless they ask something really quintessential. Like, okay, that sounds like a defense mechanism. You know, that would indicate the psychodynamic orientation. Or let's talk about self-actualization. That would indicate, you know, more of a humanistic. Or if someone is specifically Rogerian humanistic, then someone might be very obviously um, reflective in positive regard. I will say that the way she thinks is of a very typical couple therapist uh, in that she is trying to figure out what the assumptions are in the couples. She's trying to figure out, I think she's trying to figure out the schemas. I don't know if she's using that language in her mind, but I think she's trying to figure out where the distortions are coming from. And I also think she's trying to help people communicate better, which, you know, I, I guess is a systemic therapist technique. But yeah, I, I there's just not enough there. And I will say that watching her, I, I'm really proud of her. I, I think that it's a huge thing that she's doing for the profession because she's showing what couple therapy can really look like and destigmatizing it, which is fantastic. And it's a depiction of a therapist on TV in which she doesn't have sex with her clients and, or doesn't try to stalk them, which is you know a novel idea to entertainment for therapy. Um, and so, like, and her bravery. I mean, if they asked me to do it, I wouldn't have done it. I would have been like, no, 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 that's too scary. Because as a therapist, you don't know what's going to happen. And it's hard to, uh, you know, the average session for me, there's some ups and downs in terms of my um, performance. At sometimes I I feel like I'm 
I'm in the zone. And other times I feel like I'm completely just striking out and or I'm uh, having a hard time comprehending what's happening or there's been a relationship rupture that I didn't manage well. And if you put that on TV, it's probably not going to look that great. And so she she is doing a, a wonderful service, I think, and, and I commend her a lot for that. The other thing I'll say about it is that she's definitely not my style, uh, but I don't know any therapist that is my style. So when I react to her, I find myself thinking, oh, I wouldn't have done it that way. But I try to delineate when I have that reaction between, is that just a style thing or is that a bad thing? Because as a trainer of couples therapists, uh, I just said it. Uh, no, couples, what did I say? Couple therapists. See, that sounds weird, right? As a trainer of couple therapists. Maybe it's because when we say a couple of kids, you know, a couple couple kids, couple therapists. Yeah, that that technically that would be the way to say it, couple therapists plural would you wouldn't say couples that you wouldn't say groups therapists right you would say no those are two group therapists those are two family therapists those are two couple therapists I, I agree it doesn't sound right but it is right and we just have to get used to it but no we'll just change it we'll add the s and i'll just be annoyed um uh, what was i saying <laughs> uh no couple therapist is the same as my style and so because i don't i don't know if any couple therapist really agree on style because it's it's such a specific thing but um uh so sometimes i'll say i don't you know that just i think that's a style difference but then sometimes with her i will actually think oh i don't think that's a good idea not to say that there's anything wrong with that, because if you watched me, if I watch myself, I'm constantly picking apart my own actions and noticing countertransference that I didn't notice in the beginning. And I also get the impression that she is a bit of a novice because the way that she talks with her consultant is one of bewilderment. She doesn't seem to be um, experienced. The way she talks, it doesn't sound like she is fully... Um, aware of the, how do I say this? I think there's a way that people talk when they're experienced in therapy and they tend to talk from a place of wisdom and a place of more self-assuredness. She seems quite not self-assured. <laughs> when she's talking with her consultant, she seems quite, and I don't know if she's just playing it up for the cameras or it's just edited that way, but she seems really lost. And that's the way that my supervisees talk. Now, she could be five years in, she could be 10 years in, she could be 30 years in and still talk that way. And maybe she's just really humble and she just is okay with admitting that sort of thing. I don't know. But um, that's my observation of that. And if you don't watch that show or my reaction videos on that, then that was just a complete waste of your time. <laughs> All right, y'all. Thanks for listening. And everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it.